as we look to the Lord in prayer. It's fascinating, Father, that you take a historical event and put it in the wisdom section of the Scriptures. There's extraordinary wisdom to be found here in the book of Job. We need to extract it, and we need to apply it, and we need to use it in a way that makes a difference. So if there's anybody here today that finds that they've got a, a Job experience on their hands, and they're wrestling with the questions that Job is posing, I pray they'll also come to the answers that Job received. So, Father, we want to deal with real reality. We want to be practical. We want to make this personal. So, Father, use this for your honor and glory. So the minutes you give us to be together are important. So what we're asking, Father, once again, is that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds and that you would shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. When it comes to human trials and human suffering, there's a phrase that has captured my attention through the years. Quote, It has well been said that the mind of humanity is not a debating hall. It is a picture gallery. A picture gallery. I'm standing in her hospital room, and she's in severe pain. What strikes me is that while she has limited capacity to reason things through, she depends upon the medical personnel for that. Her eyes continuously shift to pictures that are on a stand in that room. Pictures of family members and pictures drawn by children. Pictures. Pictures. What stands out to me is that so often what God will do for us is not necessarily provide us an explanation of suffering, but will offer us picturesque language pertaining to suffering. And the book of Job is filled with word pictures. For example, in chapter 7, Job compares himself to a, a hired hand waiting eagerly for his wages. Quote, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Another word picture. In verse 7, he would say his life is but a breath, but then shifts to still another word picture when he goes on to say it's like a cloud that vanishes and is gone. In chapter 9, Job sees his days as swifter than a runner. Word picture. Shifts again and says they skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. One word picture after another. 
and adds man's life is like a wilting flower and like a fleeting shadow in chapter 14 and verse 2. As I think about that woman who is gripped with pain and she's in the trial of her life and she is wrestling with the big issues but lacks at that point because the energy that is required to reason instead is being invested in enduring the pain. And so she shifts from the verbal and the conceptual to the picturesque, the visual pictures. <coughs> what I want to do with you is we are continuing to explore this idea of the but God aspects of life is to draw out two significant pictures that I locate in chapter 23 that I think are going to equip us to better handle the trials of life that come our way, better equip us to address the questions of life we pose in the midst of our trials, so that what we're able to do is to be able to say, well, I'm not called to isolate my life from trials, but biblically, I can insulate my life through trials. So with that in mind, what I want to do is to draw up two significant pictures that are found here in chapter 23. And the first comes out of verses 1 down through verse 7. We're going to put it like this, that when you and I, when we're facing what I'll call intense trials, Intense trials. I want you to first of all consider the presence of God and the picture of the courtroom. The presence of God and the picture of the courtroom. Because the courtroom deals with the idea of where trials are held. And throughout the Bible, what you and I will find repeatedly is the idea of trials. I'm going to develop this because Job has got the courtroom in mind. His, his so-called comforters, and they're anything but, have reduced human suffering to a, a simple, what I'll call, judicial formula. Suffering is based upon sin. Job, you are suffering. Conclusion, therefore, Job, you have sinned. What his so-called comforters have not been able to do is to understand the vast range of reasons and purposes for suffering in this world that we're going to explore along the way here, but we've got to understand, as we've oftentimes said, that God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent, yet God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow, and that you nor I can reduce pain and suffering to one singular purpose, that throughout scriptures there are a variety of reasons for trials, intense trials. So now, Job has got to find the energy level to be able to respond to his judicial consolers, if you want to call them that. 
why in verse 21 of the 22nd chapter, the senior citizen of the group, Eliphaz, had challenged Job, agree with God and be at peace, and therefore good will come to you. In other words, he takes the judicial argument, flips it, and then says, okay, get right with God, and instead of suffering, you'll experience blessings. And yet you and I have both seen, haven't we, many times where people have been martyred for their faith. They have gone through intense trials because they have lived for God. Clearly, Eliphaz's formula doesn't work. The one-size-fits-all has got to be reevaluated. So now, Job is going to have to find the energy level to be able to address this issue. He's going to have to understand that understanding why you've been hurt is less important than trusting the one who will help you to heal. And so he's got a today moment on his hands. Maybe you do as well. He can't even bear to think about tomorrow. He's still working through the energy level of today. And his output is exceeding his input, and his so-called consolers have not provided any sense of balance. So he responds today also, also which means there have been some prior days like this. My complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. The gravitational effect upon the physical aspects of his body. You ever been there? Where you don't have enough energy level to lift your hand. That's how intense the trial is here in his experience. And so what does he do? He gives that sense of the awe here, and then he offers this sense of wishfulness. Awe. That I knew where I might find him. that I might come even to his seat. He's looking for God. The question is, is he looking for God in the right places, or is he looking for God in the wrong places? G. Campbell Morgan, who, a brilliant expositor of a prior generation from Westminster Chapel in London, we've toured that church facility, our family, He has written a brilliant book on the subject of Jesus' answers to Job. And he links verse 3 to what is found in John chapter 14 and verse 8, where Philip says to Jesus in that upper room, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. He's looking to, searching. Brilliant. Where Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Now, Job has got a judicial issue on his hands because that's the way his so-called consolers have approached him. Uh, The judicial approach does not minister effectively if it's not a judicial issue. But Job has cast his opening chapter here in the courtroom of life, the cosmic courtroom, and so God is the judge. And where can you find the judge? If you were watching the playoffs, you know that on the New York Yankees team, there's a gifted rookie by the name of Aaron Judge. And the Yankee fans have off in the outfield a setting in, known as the judges' chambers. After one of our meetings at night, I, I came home, sat down, caught a few innings, and lo and behold, there was one of the members of the Supreme Court out there in the judges' chamber, Judge Santomayor. It might have been John Smoltz or, or else Joe Buck who said, look how accessible she is. Job is looking for an accessible judge at this point. All that I knew where I might find him. That I might even, that I might even, that I might come even to his seat. But what fascinates me, when you work your way through the Scriptures, is the judicial aspect is very strong, particularly in the book of Job. But at the ultimate trial of life, the cross of Jesus Christ, we've got to remember that the Father is the judge. And no one can go to the Father but through Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus then bookends his first and last statement on the cross, where in this judicial sentencing, where the penalty of sin is being paid, the Father of the believers being addressed. Now, Job goes on here in the next verse, in verse 4, and it seems as though he's continuously pushing this courtroom, this legal, this judicial aspect of the trials of life. Again, trials and courtroom trials tied together in this cosmic courtroom of living. And so you can almost feel now his longings there in verse 4. I would lay my case before him. You can argue your case. Fill my mouth with arguments. You can argue your case before the sovereign God. Remember, Job, remember. He is father as well as judge. Now, in your inserts in the bulletins this morning, what we've penned for you is the progression of thought unfolding in the way in which Job has 
tried to understand how do I come into the courtroom and deal judicially based upon these consolers who have brought the judicial argument to the forefront. How then do I manage this? How do I deal with this? God, help me. Well, God helps him. There are three incredible messianic prophecies in the book of Job prior to chapter 23 that unfold here. You spot them in your insert in the first paragraph. Starts off with a longing in Job 9.33 where he says, Well, there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. In other words, the both means Job on one hand and God on the other hand. Job's human, God's divine. Who has the reach to be able to put one hand on the human and the other hand on the divine? And you and I know the cross of Jesus Christ answers that. Because we need someone with two natures, humanity and divinity, humanity to lay his hand on the Job's of this world, divinity to lay a hand upon the God of this world as he addresses the judicial aspect of it all. But then he moves on. You can see the progression of his thinking. And you get to chapter 16 and verse 19, and then he adds, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. He's speaking of that one to come, Jesus Christ. This is a messianic promise. And then you come to the climactic statement, testimony from his lips in chapter 19.25, which guides us through what we're looking at in chapter 23, when he would say, for I know that my Redeemer lives. <coughs> and at... And at the last, he'll stand upon the earth. So there's a progression of thought here which guides him in this courtroom issue. I would lay my case before him, but he has also embraced with the fact that he's got a defense lawyer on his hands who can put one hand on the human and the other hand on the divine. I will lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Muriel Sparks, in her novel based on Job, as an old friend who visits a Job type named Harvey Gotham. And the given the take in the novel, Spark notes this. It's profound. Job not only had to argue the problem of suffering, but he suffered the problem of argument as well. I will lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Don't, in, don't waste your energies, Job. Invest your energies. Put them in the hands of your arbiter who can put one hand on the human and the other hand on the divine. But in verse 5, he continues, I would know what he would answer me. Some certitude there. And understand what he would say to me. But now he's got a question. It's lurking in his heart. 
would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? Is he, is he going to overtake me here in this cosmic courtroom? How do I deal with God in the trials of my life? But then he adds, no, no. He would pay attention to me. He would. There an upright man could argue with him. There's that word again. But then adds, and I would be acquitted forever by by my judge. There's a difference between the judge and being judgmental, you know. Dr. Kopp, who has been a, a brilliant surgeon through the years and has a book on the subject of Job and suffering from a medical standpoint, tells of her experience. Late one night, a physician in another city sent a teenage patient to my hospital. 15-year-old Jerry knew from his symptoms that his cancer had recurred, but he didn't want to believe it. And since he and his family believed that God could heal any disease if their faith was strong enough, he chose to pray rather than report his suspicions to his doctor. Pause. Beware of putting faith in faith rather than faith in God. Continue. Finally, a school teacher noted how pale he was and called his parents, and after a brief examination confirmed the relapse and the doctor recommended treatment. When Jerry and his family refused treatment, the doctor argued with them about their religious beliefs, and she threatened to report them to Child Protective Services if they did not agree to come to my hospital for treatment. <coughs> Things were incredibly tense in the ward when I arrived that night to see him. Jerry's dad stood in front of his son's hospital room door with his arms folded across his chest. And he grunted a brief greeting to me without changing his posture. What can I do to help you? I asked him. Help me, he asked incredulously. We're here because we don't have a choice. I guided him down the hallway to a friendly visiting room. Of course you have a choice, I told him. I'm not going to order any treatment you and Jerry don't want. Well, I had no intention to ask a court to approve chemotherapy against the young man's will. If you think treatment will help, we will make a plan together. That's brilliant. If you don't want treatment, you're free to go home. And then I watched as the father crumbled into a chair. Her take. As long as authority figures argued with him, argued with him over his life's philosophy and theology, he was angry and defiant. But when the responsibility was in his hands, he fumbled his way to the path that he needed to take. He whispers, you need to do a bone marrow exam, don't you? That's the only way you'll know how to advance the cancer is, isn't it? Yes. Dr. Comp, she's wise. I handed him a cup of coffee. 
If you and Jerry want me to, I answered, I will do a bone marrow examination. But if you are not planning to go through treatment, there really isn't any point to put him through the pain of the procedure. Well, Dad invited me to go with him to talk to his son. And then she said, If I pray over Jerry during the bone marrow, he doesn't feel the pain. Is that all right with you? Well, a half hour later, we had a mutually acceptable treatment plan. During the months that followed, Jerry's dad sat in his room with a Bible open to one of two verses. One, uh, I will not give my glory to another, Isaiah 48:11. The other, you may ask for anything in my name and I will do it, John 14, 14. <coughs> I never persuaded that dad that medical care in the name of Christ glorifies God. Nor did he agree with me that because other Christians with great faith had died of cancer, that was a possibility for his son within the will of God. Neither did I even try to persuade him. But then she adds, with time he came to understand that his argument, there it is again, that his argument was not with me, or the medical establishment. Like Job, his argument was with God. Chapter 23 deals with the cosmic courtroom and the medical matters and the tendency to wrestle with the big issues of where are you, God, from a judicial standpoint, I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, he said in verse 4. But then reasoning through, he gets to verse 7 there, an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Now what you want to do at this point is to sit down with Job and talk a little bit. Maybe remind him of what C.S. Lewis wrote. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes the consolers of the wounded in life trials, they themselves are deaf. And what they need is to expand their understanding as to the reasons why we hurt. Yes, there is the judicial argument that Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar bring, but there are other reasons as well in the Scriptures for suffering. Not only the judicial argument, there's also, second of all, the educational argument. God disciplines the believer the way a father disciplines a child. It's educational. Then there's the empathetic argument. You see it in 2 Corinthians opening chapters where 
we, we hurt, we suffer so that we might be able to minister effectively to others. Not a reservoir, but a channel of grace into the soul of the hurting. The empathy reason. Fourthly, there is what we might call the glorifying reason. You meant it for harm, but God meant it for good, Joseph would say to his brothers when they had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, but now they see the outcome of it all, and Joseph gives God the glory. But fifthly, and I think it relates well to Job, there's what I will call the evidential or the testimonial reason, where Satan, in the opening chapters, thinks that Job is on the take. And if only God removes the blessings that God is giving Job, then Job will renounce God. And there's a lot of people on the face of the earth that think that believers are on the take. But then the question is, what do they do when a believer stands strong in the midst of the trials of life and brings glory and honor to God. And we are better able to understand that God's purposes are often hidden from us, that he owes us no explanations, but we owe him our faith and our hope and our love. And that we ponder the Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar counselors of this world and remind them, beware of Beware of theologies, cut-and-dry, reduced theologies that involve cause-and-effect formulas because, as Isaiah put it, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord in Isaiah chapter 55. Verse 8. For you see, what's more important than an explanation from God about your trials is a relationship with God through your trials, which is what Jesus did on that cross where he would begin and end with the my father statements, relational. Are you maintaining the relational in the midst of the trials of your Job experiences. Now we've said that Job uses word pictures, doesn't he? And throughout throughout life, you and I are going to find that people use word pictures to try to describe what they're experiencing. Somebody will say, well, life's a battle, but they're using a word picture. Perhaps they're using the idea of a sink-or-swim approach to life, where that's the idea, of course, of the voyage. What God is doing at this point here is that he is offering us not one, but a second word picture, because now beginning in verse 8, and as you and I continue our way down through verse 17, there's a second picture that emerges. Then number two, when facing intense trials, consider the purposes of God, and notice the plural, the purposes of God, 
Not one size fits all. The purposes of God and the picture of the furnace. He shifts metaphors. What Job is now going to do is to offer us distilled emotion that takes into account pictures to better describe what it is that he's experiencing. As that woman in the hospital room finds that she can't fully reason this thing through, she'll leave that to the medical personnel, but the visual has seized her attention and she's looking at the cards that have been posted on the bulletin board and the pictures of fan members. Pictures. And now Job is going to offer you another picture. He shifts from the legal courtroom picture to the physical furnace room picture. But he leads in in verse 8. Behold, I I go forward. He's not there. (coughs) Backward, but I, I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I I do not see him. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? But then Jesus reveals God to Philip in that upper room who is wondering, how do I find the Father? And Jesus tells him to look at him. And then on that cross, we are reminded when it comes to Jesus that love and suffering, as we've oftentimes said, are two sides of the same coin. And here comes the perspective. It's the but God moment. It's the verse 10 reality statement. Do you see it? Right after he feels as though he's exhausted his search for where are you, God? You almost feel him taking a deep breath here. And then adds, but he knows the way that I take. Even though I don't know the way, He knows the way that I take. And so he is now beginning to bring perspective in the midst of it all. Now if you're seeking the will of God in the midst of your trials, ask if there's any place where you're fighting the will of God even prior to your trials. He's worked that through. But he knows the way that I take, and here now is the rub. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. That captures my attention. That's the idea of the furnace and the results of the furnace. 
one writer tells us who knows a lot about this subject that the melting point of gold is 1,063 degrees Celsius. Some types of smelting furnaces are made of clay with two small openings at the bottom, one for blowing and fanning the flame, the other for letting out the molten lead at the end of the process. And the pure metal is retrieved by breaking the clay. And human beings can design instruments to test the purity of gold. But we add, the one who tests the heart. The one who tests the heart. That's the Lord. And so now what we've got is the picture of the furnace and the refiner of the gold. And so now you're in the furnace, Job. How are you going to manage this? There's a process involved. So I, I looked up a bit of the refinement of gold. First of all, the refiner breaks up the natural ore. And then what comes to mind is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. In stage two, the refiner places unrefined silver, gold, into a crucible. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Thirdly, the refiner places the crucible in the heated furnace to remove the dross. And the Bible in Proverbs 25.4 says, Remove the dross and produce a vessel. Stage four, the refiner raises the temperature to higher degrees. And the psalmist says in 12.6, And the words of the Lord are flawless. You're purified in a crucible. The gold refined seven times. Stage five, the refiner continues to remove the impurities. And here now, Job in 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. He, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. The trying is the removal of what doesn't belong until you get to that final stage, stage six, where God says in Isaiah 48.10, See, I have refined you. I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. Johnny Erickson Tata said, one day your banged, bruised body won't matter a whole lot, but right now it screams for your undivided attention. And in a women's Bible study, they were studying the idea of God as the refiner and trying to understand this whole issue of the role of the refiner. So one of them went to talk to a refiner thinking about how God is involved in the hot spot of our lives. Pondering the verse, he sits as a refiner in Malachi, and she asked, in this case, a silversmith rather than a goldsmith, if it was true that he had to sit there in front of the fire the entire time of refinement. And the man answered, yes. Not only did he have to sit there, but he had to keep his eyes on what was being refined the entire time it was in the fire. Silver, gold, left even for a moment too long in the flames, be destroyed. 
The woman was silent for a moment, and then she asked him, But how do you know when it has been truly refined? And he smiled at her, and then he answered, Oh, that's easy. It's when I see my image in it. And God sees his image in his children. And he takes you through the refined process so that you understand that the one-size-fits-all approach of reducing God's ways to overly simplistic formulas have got to be challenged by the sum total of the ways in which God addresses the issues of refinement in the texts of the Scriptures. So you explore that. You ponder that. And you think about what God is saying here. And you remind yourself of Proverbs 17.3, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. And Job says, but God, in essence. But he knows the way. I don't get it. But he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall, not might, I shall come out as gold, refiner's fire. Are you in it? For some it's the courtroom. For others it's the furnace. But we'll end with 11 and 12. Regain your footing, okay? My foot has held fast to his steps. I've kept his way, have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. As you ponder a woman who's gazing at pictures, but you gaze into God's word and see the picture, the big picture, and you ponder the cross where Jesus died in your place for your sins. Let's stand together. We've spotted from Scripture at least six to seven reasons why, why people suffer, why there are trials. <coughs> but as we've often said, Father, you reveal enough to make our faith intelligent. You conceal enough to allow our faith to grow. But as the book of Job reminds us, in all of our trials, we do have access to you. And that there was another member found in that furnace along Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we thank you for the courtroom and we thank you for the furnace. We thank you that you have dealt with matters judicially. You have dealt with matters of suffering. The cross of Jesus Christ. And we live between the now and the not yet. And so the refinement continues. 
But what each of us want, Father, is for you to see your image in our lives based upon a faith in Jesus Christ alone. So, Father, we give all this to you now. And we thank you for the but gods of life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.